So this evening we have already come to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and um, actually the message last time was on verses 11 through 13, and this evening we're going to focus just on verse 12, um, here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonian Christians, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Sometimes we don't know what to do. The solution to the problem that we are facing just doesn't come to us. And sometimes we can feel overwhelmed. I'm talking in the context of our Christian life as we seek to live according to God's will, as we seek to make decisions that are pleasing to him. Uh, We realize that The instruction we need, the wisdom that we need is in the scriptures, and it can seem to us at times that the Bible is uh, so full of so many instructions about how to live the Christian life, uh, it can sometimes feel overwhelming, virtually impossible to get a hold on all of it. And uh, we may feel that we master one aspect of the Lord's will, only to find that we've neglected another aspect. Adding to the difficulty is the fact that scripture doesn't tell us specifically what to do in every situation. Um, Often God's will is laid out um, in ways where we have to to study God's word, we have to apply principles, and uh, often uh, God's will is not laid out as clearly and as neatly as we would like, which is exactly why we need wisdom. We need wisdom to apply biblical principles to the various situations that we face in our lives. And yet we're reminded this evening from this, this, this verse before us this evening that when it comes to knowing God's will, love is really at the heart and center of what God requires, what God wants. Um, there really are not lists of do's and don'ts in the Bible, but all of God's requirements come back to this principle of loving God and the neighbor. If you ever wonder what God would have you to do, the solution will more than likely become clear as you begin to ask such questions as, well, what decision is motivated by love for God? Which decision will help me love God more? Which decision will build up my neighbor? Which decision will demonstrate God's love through my life? And uh, sometimes the solution to the questions of life is right there in front of us, and we forget the basics. We forget that when it comes to God's will for our lives, God requires love. It's that simple and it's that difficult all at the same time. And a recurring theme in 1 Thessalonians has been the importance of love toward the neighbor, especially toward fellow believers. Uh, To put this verse in its context, remember that 1 Thessalonians is written by Paul from Corinth with instructions to new converts. Uh, This is a letter of the apostle, an epistle, that's not directed toward any particular controversy, but on the contrary, the letter is written as a means of encouragement and instruction to those who are faithful, but who can certainly grow in their faith and grow in their walk with the Lord. And in this letter, Paul is rejoicing because as he tells the people at Thessalonica, he's received a good report from Timothy concerning them. Paul had earlier ministered in Thessalonians, and yet enemies had forced him, uh, in Thessalonica, pardon me, um, he had ministered there, 
uh, in Thessalonica, but enemies had forced him to leave prematurely. And uh, concerned about their well-being, Paul sent Timothy to visit them. And then Timothy brings a report back to Paul there in Corinth, and so Paul sits down and writes this first letter to the Thessalonians from Corinth in response to Timothy's report. And uh, Timothy's report, as we have noted, was good news, for as Paul says, he is encouraged by their steadfast faith and love. Uh, We can uh, picture the Apostle Paul giving a large sigh of relief. He says, for example, in chapter 3, verses 6 through 8, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Uh, From verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, we gather that Paul has been greatly concerned that the Thessalonian Christians be established and comforted in their faith while in the midst of persecution. And now he hears that they are indeed spiritually healthy. And this, this health is evidenced not only by their faith, but by their love. And uh, Paul lets them know that he, Timothy, and Silas are praying earnestly night and day that they might see them again, that they might continue to build up their faith through further instruction. And this longing of the apostle to see them is not based on mere sentiment, like that of a, a good friend simply wanting to have fun together once again with, with other friends, but his longing for them is based on a deeper love that is concerned that the Christians in Thessalonica would become stronger spiritually. And so he prays that their love would grow for each other and for everyone else. Verse 12, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. That kind of love, this growing love, would be a sign of spiritual strength and would indicate that they are on the right track spiritually. So clearly the church, clearly you and I as as individual members of the church need to grow in love. But then that raises the question, what is love? And a love is not primarily a feeling of attraction, a feeling of affection, although it often involves Uh, tender feelings, but to the world, love is too often a matter of mere sentiment, and more often than not is used only to describe the attraction of the sexes. I'm afraid that the biblical idea of love is unknown to many, and that's because you can't really understand what love is until you know God. For God is love. God is as to his very essence, as to his very nature, an attribute of God is that he is love. First John 4, 8 reads, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Not that God is simply loving, though that is true, but God is love. He is the very definition of love. If you want to know and understand the concept love, in other words, you must explain the depths of God. And because love is an attribute of God, love is, some, is something that God is apart from his creation. And I bring that up because we might be inclined to define love in terms of God's love toward us and this creation. And yet before this world existed, before we existed, God was love. 
And so we must consider the meaning of love in the context of the Godhead, first of all. And with that in mind, consider what is the nearest thing to a definition of love that we find in Scripture. Uh, Colossians 3.14. Colossians 3.14 says, But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. That's the old King James. Um, ESV says, love. Above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So love is described as a bond. And uh, when we think of a bond, we think of something that unites several things together. There is some way, then, in which, since God is love, there is a bond of perfection. There is harmony that's taking place within God himself. And when we apply this idea of a bond to God as he existed in eternity before the creation of the world, we probably, most of us, think of the Trinity. And that's, we would be on the right track. We think of the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living in a bond of love toward each other. Love defines their relationship with each other. They fellowship with each other. They delight in each other. They seek to bless each other. They're tenderly affected toward each other. Their love for each other binds the three persons of the Trinity into one unity. And understanding love as it originates in the very being of God, then you can understand what love is, or at least should be, in your relationship with God and with others. So love in its highest form involves a unity of heart and mind in which people are drawn to each other because they are delighting in what is truly good, what is truly godly in each other. Ideally, you should be drawn to fellowship and to friendship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ because you adore the image of God that you see in each other. True, godly love delights in that which is righteous and true and Christ-like, which means that you should be drawn to adore and cherish those who are like Christ. The kind of people that you should want around you are those who demonstrate the character of God. That kind of love for others necessarily implies, right, a love for God. In other words, you love his people because they are like him, because they reflect the God that you delight in. On the other hand, if you don't love God, you're never going to love the right things. You're not going to delight in the right things. You're not going to delight to be around those who keep God's law. You're not going to seek the fellowship of God's people. In other words, the people, the things that you delight in, tell everything about what you love. You can see it in the world around us. What do unbelievers delight in? Well, they delight in worldly, self-centered pleasures, the things of this earth, entertainment, immorality, riches, enjoying what they call the good life. They enjoy the things of this world as they fulfill the lusts of the flesh, and they love those who share their same values. People of the world choose spouses not on the basis of godly character because they think, wow, this person reflects the glory of God, but on the basis of such things as outward appearance, fun personality, the, the job, perhaps, or the social status, the common interests that this person has. And certainly, um, there are unbelievers who evaluate a potential spouse on the basis of, of character that can certainly be involved, but it's not an attraction to godliness. It's ultimately an attraction to traits, to, to character traits that they believe are going to end up blessing them 
and uh, usually the relationship is based mostly on physical attraction. And so we find that the, the belief, uh, or I should say the, the love that goes on among unbelievers is, is, is shallow. And their unity of heart and mind bears some resemblance to love, but it's not the agape love of the Bible. It's not the agape love of our text. It's not God's love. This agape love can only be worked in the heart by the Spirit of God. It's something that God works in us by his grace. So Romans 5 verse 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Or as 1 John 4 19 says, We love him because he first loved us. God's love for us manifests itself and giving us new affections so that we begin to love the things that God loves. It makes us new creatures in Christ with the result that we now love God and others with a true love. And the problem and the reason why we need this evening's reminder is, and this reminder that we increase and abound in love, is that we don't love perfectly. We not only find ourselves loving things that we should not love, We also don't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength as we ought, and too often we fail to even love our neighbor as ourselves. The problem is the reality of sin. Sin is a distortion of love. We are by nature sinners that don't love God, sinners that love the things of this world, sinners who delight in others of like condition. And when God sheds sheds his love abroad in your heart, just as he does for all true believers, there are still these remnants of your corrupt nature that remain. And this means that you're still going to tend at various times to think the way that an unbeliever does. You sometimes love the wrong things. The remnants of this corrupt nature in all believers also means that those around us are sometimes difficult to love. Loving God, you now delight in that which is lovely, that which is good, And yet, too often, your neighbor is not lovely and good. And he is difficult to love. And the fact is, you sometimes are difficult to love. Because none of us, if we are honest, are perfectly like Christ. And yet, that does not get you off the hook. You are called to love each other. And our example to us in this is God himself. We understand that. When God created this world, he delighted in it. He called it good. After all, as his handiwork, it was and is a revelation of himself. This creation declares his glory. And especially man, as the highest creature made in the image of God, was God's delight. And after creating man and woman, God declared us to be very good. God loved his creation, and he manifested that love in preserving and caring for his creation meeting the needs of his creatures, tenderly caring for all of his creatures. And so it was easy, so to speak, for God to love his perfect world. When Adam fell into sin and drugged down the whole creation with him, God continued to love his creation, but there were certainly changes that took place. This creation, including man, came to not only know God's love, but also his wrath. Not only that, but even his love took on a new angle, so to speak. And it had to because love is, remember, ultimately a love of God for himself. 
It's a love that delights in that which is good and right and holy. And the reality of evil made much of this creation, including man, repulsive in God's sight. Our holy God can't look upon evil. He can't have a bond of fellowship and friendship with those creatures that no longer bear the image of Christ. Remember that in falling into sin, man bears now the image of the devil, at least in the moral sense of that image. We make a distinction. There is a sense in which sinful fallen man continues to bear the image of God because we are still spiritual, rational beings. Uh, We, more than any other creature, reveal the glory of God. And yet, morally, spiritually, we have lost God's image as we come from Adam. And yet, even with the reality of sin, God continues to demonstrate goodness and kindness to his creatures, all of them, even sinful man. And we call this goodness to all of his creatures love because scripture does. Now, it's not the fullest kind of love, not like the love of the persons of the Trinity for one another, but it is a love in which God maintains a bond with his creation as its creator and sustainer. And yet we recognize that sin has changed things. Now, because of the reality of sin, we speak of God's love in terms of grace and mercy and forbearance. These are all words that make no sense apart from the fall. Grace, because God's love was forfeited by man's rebellion. Grace, because God's love is no longer deserved. Within the Godhead, the persons of the Trinity, perfectly righteous and holy, you understand, deserve to be the objects of love. But with sinful man, God has chosen to be loving to that which is repulsive and deserves destruction. That's grace. And the mercy of of God, that's the love of God, which actually reaches down and helps lift the undeserving sinner out of his misery. And forbearance is the love of God that bears with the sinner who fails to heed God's warnings. And it's God's love that accounts for the fact that believer and unbeliever alike experience many good things in this life. Nevertheless, you must not take this love for all the world too far You must not imagine that God delights in the unrepentant sinner. He, as the holy God, cannot have a bond of delight with that which is evil. And all unbelievers are evil. They not only do evil things, they are evil. We, by nature, are evil. Now, God's love for the reprobate wicked is a love whereby whereby he has chosen to do good to them as part of his creation. And that's all. Now, that... It's not meant to imply that that kind of love is a small thing. And uh, that's also how you are to love unbelievers. It's a rather striking thing that the word for love used in our text and often used throughout scripture is the word agape. A word whose meaning fits with how God's love had to adjust to this sinful world. Because the word agape refers predominantly to a love of choice. It's a love of action. It's a love that is intelligent and purposeful. A love that seeks to do good to others even when they are morally repulsive. It can refer to a love that involves the emotions of delight and devotion and adoration and cherishing and affection. But it doesn't have to and often doesn't. And this is important to realize because the scripture tells us here we are to increase and abound in love, not only to one another, 
but to all. You are in some way to love even unbelievers. Having said that, it should be apparent that you cannot have a fellowship, uh, a relationship of fellowship. You can't have a relationship of intimate delight and and friendship with unbelievers because um, they serve the devil with their lives. Such, Such love would be a perversion of love. You are to love in the sense of affection and delight only those who are like God. But you can love the wicked world in the sense of cherishing them as God's creatures, in the sense of doing good to them. In fact, you need to grow in this kind of love toward all. So Paul speaks here of both an increasing and abounding in love. Increasing refers to a growing in quantity, while abounding means to overflow. And so the idea is that your love for others should be um, should, should so increase that it overflows. In other words, Paul is praying that love would be expressed more often and more visibly. That love would be, would be spreading and, and seeking new objects and new means of expression so that people would see to a greater extent the love of Christ expressed in your lives. His hope is that his readers will seek out opportunities to express love. And I believe that that's the Spirit's same message here this evening to you. Your love must abound. It must be beyond what is expected. It must be more than just an average sort of love, but you are to give selflessly and continually to others, seeking at all times to do good to others. There's a love that most people would expect of an average, decent person. The scripture here impresses upon you the calling to be far more loving than that. You must demonstrate nothing less than the abounding love of Jesus Christ himself. Romans 5, verses 7 and 8 reminds us of that love. It says, For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who would go into a burning building to save a known terrorist. Yet to do so would be analogous to the abounding love of Christ whose love extended to his enemies, to those utterly undeserving of love. All of you believers were by nature at one time haters of God, intent on doing all you could to rebel against him, and yet Christ died for you. This is a love that goes way beyond the call of duty, way beyond what we conceive to be logical and expected, that Christ would die for us miserable, rebellious, hateful sinners is really beyond comprehension. But that is the example of the abounding love that you are called to show in your lives. You are to love those who least deserve it. Paul gives himself and Timothy and Silas as examples. He tells them to love just as we for you. That love consisted, first of all, in bringing the gospel to them. It's always evidence of Christian love when you can look out upon the world and you see terrible sinners, and though you are repulsed by them, yet love constrains you to witness to them in hopes of their salvation. Paul and his companions had lovingly brought the word to those in Thessalonica, and many were now followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you also must witness to the undeserving with the hope of leading them to God's love. 
And you must remember that you were once just as undeserving of love, but yet God, in his grace, drew you to himself. Paul's love was also demonstrated in his desire not to be a burden to any of the people in Thessalonica. He talks about how he and his companions worked night and day so as not to be a burden. So that not only did they give the gospel, they gave their very lives. They spent themselves on behalf of the people. And the same kind of self-sacrifice must permeate your relationships with others. Even as brothers and sisters in Christ, you are called to, want to love one another as you love yourself. And you cherish yourself, do you not? You take care of yourself. You seek to do good to yourself. In the same way, you must cherish those who belong to the body of Christ and seek to do them good, to build them up, which means sometimes encouraging, which means sometimes rebuking. You must be on the lookout for opportunities to bear one another's burdens. And this love must be increasing and abounding so that all of your life can be said to be a life of service to fellow believers. You must go out of your way to demonstrate love, going beyond what is expected. Christ did Uh, He he loved beyond what was expected in his love for us. And uh, we've been focusing on love as doing good to others, but the love we have for fellow believers should ideally be love in the fullest extent of the word as a bond of affection and devotion and delight. As members of the body of Christ, as those who now by God's spirit bear the image of Christ, you should adore and you should delight in your fellow believers. In fact, love for God compels you to do so. Love for that which is good and right and holy makes you love God's people. Of course, there's the problem that even as Christians, you're not perfect. You often make it difficult to be loved. There's still so much sin. There is so much which is undelightful in us. And to this, you should respond in two ways. First, you must determine to love believers by at least doing good to them. And second, you need to examine yourself and ask if you are a lovable person. Do you reflect the character of Christ? Are you a delight to others because of your attitude and your actions? Our Lord Jesus Christ is easy to love. We're to submit to him, obey him, and he makes it easy because of his love for us. And we ought to make it easy for others to love us by being like the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, love is what marks the disciples of Christ. Love is the bond that unites the church in holy unity. Love is what the world must see if they are to recognize the presence of Christ in us. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, the Lord said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love. For one another. People wrestle with what that means when Jesus says that this is a new commandment that we love one another. Well, it's an old commandment, but when we see it lived out in the life of Christ, we understand that loving one another is a new commandment. It takes on a whole new meaning, a whole new aspect when we think of Christ as the example of what that love is to look like. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. 
in 1 John 4, verse 10, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. May the Lord enable you to increase and to abound in love for one another and for all to the glory of his love and grace. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we stand in awe of your love. We recognize that you are love. That love is defined really as that relationship that exists between you as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, delighting in that which is perfect and holy and good. And Father, we thank you that you are working in us by your Holy Spirit through the gospel, through the Lord Jesus Christ, a new nature in us by which we are like Christ and become in that sense worthy of love. Um, things are truly delightful about us. Father, we're thankful for that. We're also, we are also those who recognize that we are far from perfect in our love. We need to abound. We need to increase in our love for one another and for all. Lord, we need to increase and abound in our love for you. And uh, Father, so we pray that you would forgive our lack of love. We pray that you continue to work mightily within us, that you would give us a love for the lost world around us, uh, self sacrificial love, a desire to see um, the love of Christ in their hearts and affecting their lives. Lord, may we do, do good even to our enemies. May we, Lord, um, especially love your people, those who reflect your character, those that you love, that you delight in. May we delight in them for the same reasons you do. And uh, so, Father, we pray that we would, as the Apostle Paul was hoping for the, the Thessalonian Christians, may it also be, Lord, our desire and our goal that we would abound and increase in love. Uh, we look to you, and uh, we pray that uh, we'd continue to know what it is to love, even as you continue to love us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's now stand and sing together number 538, 538. 